This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to the New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Justin Gomer about his book, White Balance, How Hollywood Shaped Colorblind Ideology and Undermined Civil Rights, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Gomer is an assistant professor of American studies at California State University, Long Beach. White Balance explores the connection between politics and film from the 1970s to the 19th. 1990s. Dr. Gomer illustrates the myriad of ways that Hollywood relied on and helped solidify an emerging ideology of colorblindness in the wake of the civil rights movement. From films like Dirty Harry to Rocky, Dr. Gomer is able to show just how much issues of race, class, and bipartisan agreement over what to do with race in the new nation informed Hollywood and how Hollywood was able to inform the public about these issues. Dr. Gomer, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be with you today. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic and why you decided to study it? Yeah, so I think my research interests um, have always centered around questions of race and popular culture. Um, and you know, as I was pursuing specific interests within that larger um, framework, I just became really interested in in the relationship between Hollywood and how we think about race. Um, you know, sort of from a cultural studies standpoint, right? You start with the with the basic premise that um, popular culture uh, doesn't just reflect the way that we think about the world; it actively shapes it. You know, there's a there's a great Bertolt Brecht quote that says, um, you know, culture isn't um, a mirror to hold up to society; it's a hammer with which uh, to shape it. And I'm you know, sure, getting that that quote slightly wrong, but that's that's sort of the gist. The gist, and so, um, you know, so I kind of start from from a real belief in that in that sort of premise, and then as as I just sort of worked through it, um, just became interested in in questions of colorblindness, and um, felt like Hollywood was uh, really an important site that that ideology uh, took shape, um, and that just sort of started me. Uh, down the road of asking a lot of questions about the relationship to Hollywood and colorblindness. And uh, this book is sort of what came of all of that. And early on, you point out to readers the difference between what you call a colorblind rhetoric and an ideology of colorblindness. And as you point out, these are very uh, different things, and it's very important in terms of how things change over time in the latter half of the 20th century. And so can you explain to our listeners what the difference between colorblind rhetoric and an ideology of colorblindness is? Yeah, so um, colorblind rhetoric just refers to this idea um, of, of sort of a post-racial society, if you will, um, a society in which, you know, to paraphrase, to paraphrase, uh, you know, Martin Luther King's most cited line, you know, a, a society in which people are judged uh, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Right. And so colorblind rhetoric was was held up um, at times during the civil rights movement as this sort of goal. Right. As a dream, um, if you will. Um, the ideology of colorblindness, on the other hand, uses colorblind rhetoric um, to undermine civil rights and to actually inhibit inhibit. Um, larger struggles uh, towards racial progress. Uh, and that's been the case uh, since the civil rights movement. So I think when we're thinking about colorblindness, right, we have to be very careful about, about what we're talking about, right? Are we thinking about colorblindness as, 
as sort of a goal to hold up to our society, one of in in which you know racial equality um, is something that that we've achieved, or are we talking about colorblindness as sort of an ideological strategy um, to challenge uh, and and often eliminate? Um, if we're looking at the history of of the decades since the civil rights movement, to actually eliminate some of the very victories um, of the civil rights movement, and so I think it's. It's, it's always important to keep those two things um, separate in our mind, that, that there, is, there is the rhetoric of colorblindness again, and then the actual ideology, which the work of the ideology uh, has actually proven to undermine uh, civil rights. And I think one thing that I found really interesting about your discussion of that was how you pointed out uh, just the title of your work coming around, you know, this issues of colorblind rhetoric and an ideology of colorblindness because it's called white balance. And you point out that that has a sort of two layer meaning about one being sort of, um, you know, in photography and cinematography, it's being it's used to sort of set the rest of the color automatically. Um, and then, as you say, it is used um, in a sort of another sense to sort of foreground and center whiteness in this project um, from in sort of in Hollywood and then in society itself. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, a lot, you know, what I'm trying to, to signal in the title is that what ultimately the, the results of the ideology of colorblindness have, have been to this point. Um, and I think it's sort of another question whether or not we are still living in what we might call the age of colorblindness. Um, but, but certainly the, the net result of um, the ideology of colorblindness in the decades after the civil rights movement was to kind of recenter and reinforce white supremacy uh, around a discourse that was uh, race neutral. I know as someone myself, I do sort of photography on the side. I sort of appreciated sort of dual meeting there. And I didn't catch it when I first saw the title to begin with. And so it was a nice little sli sleight of hand on your part, in my opinion. Yeah, I appreciate that. I wish I could take all the credit for that. But honestly, that was that was my editor's title. Um, and it was, you know, it's it's um, it's it's one of the many uh, reasons why I had a wonderful editor, Brandon Proya at um, UNC Press. But uh, yeah, my, my title for, for the book was uh, was rejected very quickly um, by uh, the editorial board at UNC. And I think for good reason. Um, and, and I'm very happy with with what came of the title. And it was one of those things that as soon as as soon as it came up as an idea, um, you know, it quickly made sense of, of why that that title would speak uh, much better to kind of the the, the um, philosophical and sort of theoretical interventions um, of the project. Yes, I always find us scholars are really good about explaining things, not exactly as good at titling things. That's exactly right. That's uh, in, in some ways that was the hardest, you know, giving titles to individual sections and chapters was uh was some of the hardest work of, uh, of the entire project. And so delving into the work, one of the things that you first look at is the emergence of what you call New Hollywood or what was called New Hollywood and how that is sort of, you know, kickstarting or sort of getting on the bandwagon of the emerging ideology of colorblindness. So can you explain to us what's going on during that time period? Yeah. So New Hollywood, uh, is, is sort of this era in um, the history of Hollywood that that comes about roughly um, alongside of, of the civil rights movement and the years after the civil rights movement. So um, if you think about um, the ideology of colorblindness sort of emerging um, in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, New Hollywood emerges uh, at roughly the same time. And uh, to understand New Hollywood, you have to just know a, a little bit about the classical Hollywood studio system, um, which was in Hollywood the uh, business model that more or less informed movie making um, from, you know, around the 1920s through the 1950s. Um, it was a business model founded uh, or, or sort of informed by this idea of vertical integration, where studios controlled the production, distribution and exhibition um, of all of their films. Uh, and it was a model that made Hollywood um, incredibly popular, right? So that by the 1930s, you have, you know, Americans going to, to roughly one movie per week. Um, what happens, though, is uh, for a couple of reasons, um, that business model uh, and the popularity of Hollywood declined significantly uh, over the course of the 1950s and into the 1960s. Um, some of that uh, was uh, Supreme Court decisions that ruled that the vertical integration business model violated antitrust law. 
And uh, the other piece of that is the rise of television, right? That at, over the course of the 1950s, um, basically Americans uh, become TV owners uh, and start watching a lot more um, television and movies in their house and start going to movie theaters less and less. So by the time you get into the 1960s, Hollywood's in really bad shape. Um, and so what it had to do was basically reorient itself and find a, a new path forward. And what emerged out of that was New Hollywood. Um, and so some of the characteristics of New Hollywood then um, is, is sort of a different sort of business model. But what you also get um, with New Hollywood is the elimination of the production code, right? That, um, that regulated content in Hollywood during the classical era. Um, the production code is then replaced by the modern rating system that we have, right? So if you think about the production code, basically what, what that did is it required all movies to more or less be PG rated if we think about them um, in terms of contemporary uh, ratings. New Hollywood then creates the modern rating system. And so you're able to explore um, a much wider range uh, of content. Um, you also have, because of the, of the very poor economic performance of Hollywood, um, in the 1960s, you also uh, are dealing with significant budget restraints. So the importance of New Hollywood and understanding colorblindness then deals with this idea of Hollywood being in sort of a desperate situation, um, but having the opportunity to explore content that it had previously been unable to explore during the classical era. And so that desperation, uh, I, I argue, created more opportunities for different sorts of stories different sorts of filmmakers to find their way onto, onto um, Hollywood movie screens. And very early what happens is that in, the, in these sort of years, in the decade or so after um, the civil rights movement, um, you start to have these early themes that, that we might sort of connect to colorblindness or an emerging colorblind ideology um, really play out um, and, and find their way onto Hollywood movie screens and, and more than anything else, find popularity among among movie audiences. And one of the things that you point out as well is that during this sort of initial period, New Hollywood doesn't have the sort of monopoly that we think about today where, you know, if there's a new film coming out, we automatically sort of assume it's coming from Hollywood studios. And so one of the things that you point out is that other filmmakers and other sort of filmmaking companies are able to also participate in this emerging ideology and one of the films that you look at is Claudine. And so can you explain uh, to our listeners how that works into this and maybe just a brief summary of what Claudine is for people who might not be familiar with it? Yeah. So Claudine is a, is an independent film made in the early 1970s um, by a company called third world cinema. And uh, what third world cinema was, was it was a collection of artists uh, film producers, filmmakers, actors, and so forth uh, that got together to try to make movies uh, that offered representations of uh, communities of color and communities that had been marginalized um, historically on Hollywood movie screens, um, African-Americans in particular, um, to, tr to, more, to make different sorts of movies uh, that, that showed different, um, you know, more humane uh, representations of African-Americans that really centered Black life and Black experiences. Um, and so the first uh, film that TWC makes is Claudine. Uh, the basic plot of Claudine, um, it stars Diane Carroll uh, and James Earl Jones, two sort of iconic black actors. Um, and Claudine deals with uh, the title character who plays a single mother um, on welfare in Harlem. And the movie centers around the difficulties of her providing for her family while also um, complying with uh, very punitive uh, welfare requirements, right? So uh, the film explores why in order for her to receive welfare benefits, there's all sort of rules. There's all sorts of rules about um, whether or not she can, she can date, who she can date, whether or not the person she dates can buy her um, anything like a toaster, whether or not um, the person she falls in love with, who is James Earl Jones, is allowed to live in her house. And whether or not any income she earns through work um, sort of uh, invalidates her uh, qualifications for welfare benefits. And so what you have in Claudine ultimately is sort of a look at black urban life um, in the 1970s that explores uh, how, in fact, welfare really undermined uh, the uh, sort of structures and fabric of black families rather than um, assisted in any sort of way. 
And for me, I found it a really interesting, your your sort of discussion of this film, mostly like on a two part one, just, you know, your general sort of thesis going on about colorblindness and how this film sort of represents it and is, you know, as you said, sort of pushing back on certain uh, images of black and other marginalized people in Hollywood. And then for myself, I was because I didn't watch this film. It was interesting to see how in the 1970s people were discussing this. And as someone who grew up um, with a parent on welfare, there were so many of these things that you were talking about that I was like, oh, well, this is still very much there. It's so much slightly different in, you know, sort of the 90s and early 2000s that I was growing up in. Yeah. And it's, and it's a really wonderful film. And I think the reason why I think it's so important as, as a lens to, to examine the emergence of colorblindness, because colorblindness as a coherent ideology uh, really doesn't uh, take shape um, and, and really cohere until the middle of the 1970s. So when you have a film like Claudine, you're, you're a few years away from that. Um, and I think why Claudine is, is therefore so important is that what you see is um, colorblindness as an emerging ideology that is yet to kind of find its final shape. And so one of the things that I think is so fascinating about Claudine is that um, it's very, very clearly a quote unquote black film, right? You're dealing with Harlem, this iconic black neighborhood. Um, you're dealing with um, a family that's on welfare, which in terms of sort of public racial discourse um, in the aftermath of the Moynihan report, um, you know, as, you know, welfare gets racialized very explicitly as this as this benefit that is exploited by black women. Um, and that's sort of this myth, this racialized myth of welfare um, that emerges around the same time. Um, there's all sorts of discussion, explicit discussions uh, in the movie itself about uh, issues of racism impacting black communities. Um, and yet, and yet the, when the film was marketed, when it was sold, there was all sorts of interviews done and press materials released. That, that tried to position colorblindness as a quote-unquote colorblind film. So you see language used like this is a film for all families. This is a film that all Americans can relate to. And so there's this disconnect where on the one hand, you have a film that, that speaks very specifically to issues related to race um, and urban poverty that were impacting African Americans in particular. And yet there's also this need for the filmmakers. You can sort of see um, this desire to appeal in a more kind of race neutral or colorblind fashion. And so I think what that shows is that, that there's, there's this emerging idea of colorblindness. Colorblindness is starting to kind of take a hold um, of sort of popular discourse around race. Um, but, but yet you have a movie that's very explicitly sort of racialized. Um, and then the other thing about, about Claudine that's, that's absolutely worth mentioning is that the original script for Claudine was about um, a white woman on welfare whose husband had had died of cancer. And so over the course of turning this initial idea into the film that would become Claudine, you you sort of change you change the racial identity um, of the family and therefore that changes very much how the film is read and sort of the politics of the film itself. So so to argue right that that Claudine was in any way sort of a colorblind film or that race wasn't a central feature both in sort of how the script was conceived how the movie was shot and so on and so forth is um, is one that that you couldn't make, and yet uh, nonetheless, the way it was marketed was in this sort of colorblind fashion. And so, you know, that's some of the contradiction that you see around colorblindness in the early 1970s. It's not tied to a specific sort of political project. It's very much um, in bits and pieces, and you see it throughout um, public and political discourse. And as you said earlier, and just now, you know, colorblindness is not sort of coherent yet at this time period in the early 1970s. But by the mid to late 1970s, it does become coherent. And so what changes during that time period that you're able to see? And how do we see this playing out in film? Yeah, so what coheres the ideology of colorblindness is widespread white opposition to two civil rights issues, uh, school integration and affirmative action. And so by the time you get to the middle of the 1970s, what had happened is that white folks come to vehemently oppose uh, on the whole school integration through things like busing. So you can think of the Boston busing riot, uh, for example, as, as, a, as a primary example of this. Um, and the other issue being affirmative action. 
Um, so by the time you're, you're to 
right? Uh, Apollo Creed's never called a racial slur. His racial identity is never even acknowledged, but you see it. And, and that I think is ultimately why Hollywood is so important um, in shaping colorblind uh, ideology in the decades after the civil rights movement is that as race conscious language is removed um, or expelled from public discourse around race and civil rights, Hollywood becomes a site because it is a, a medium of visual culture. It becomes a place where you can see race and you can have sort of racial dramas without actually acknowledging uh, race in discourse or in language. And colorblindness is very much about, about the language of race. And so to have um, this medium where you can see race without acknowledging it verbally becomes fundamental towards uh, in order to shaping colorblind ideology. And I think that's so interesting, especially, you know, as you were just saying, and as you say in the book, you know, Rocky is sort of saturated with racial imagery um, and sort of symbolism. And yet, as you just said, and you say in the book, there's no mention of race um, sort of explicitly or even sort of implicitly. Yet it's there. It's definitely you can't miss it. And it's sort of the way you delve into how, you know, Hollywood is making this, how the um, audience is going to receive this and how the audience sort of wants their own beliefs to be reaffirmed during this time period. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really the, the way that Rocky shapes who is our hero, who is our villain in that first film really centers around the question of who is an American and who is not. You know, Rocky Balboa's fight moniker is he's the Italian stallion. He's not the Italian-American stallion. Um, Apollo Creed, on the other hand, enters that final fight uh, at first dressed as George Washington. He then changes into a costume of Uncle Sam. He then fights with American flag boxing trunks. They fight on uh, an American flag ring. And so there's all of this imagery assigned to um, Apollo Creed, that Apollo Creed is the American, but for him, these symbols of patriotism, right? They're just for show. They're just for ways to sort of build his, uh, his brand and his wealth. And leading up to that fight, all of the scenes with Apollo Creed, uh, his interests in the fight are solely around his, the ability for him to profit off of and make money off of this fight. Rocky Balboa, on the other hand, believes in sort of the purity and sort of sanctity of the sport of boxing. I mean, the movie starts with an image of, with sort of this uh, mural of Jesus above a boxing ring, right? So, so the film sets up that boxing is this sort of sacred meritocratic space where two people fight and the better man wins. Uh, and yet what the film sets up is that Rocky embodies all of the characteristics of what we imagine uh, are necessary in pursuit of the American dream. He's modest. He's hardworking. He just wants a shot at a better life. And yet he can't find that anywhere, right? He's, he's trapped sort of in poverty. No matter how hard he works, he cannot get a chance. He cannot sort of find any traction in sort of upward mobility or advancing his boxing career. And that's contrasted with what we see as this black fighter that's become the heavyweight champion, that's acquired all of this wealth and prestige and celebrity, who is undeserving of that, right? And so in that way, it, it speaks directly to sort of the rhetoric of something like affirmative action. Um, you know, you never see Apollo Creed train for the fight. He never once hits a punching bag or a speed bag. You never see him lift a weight or drink raw eggs. But Rocky does all of that, right? So it's, you see this direct contrast between who is deserving and who is undeserving, for whom is the interest um, or is the idea of America and the American dream something they truly believe in versus versus for whom the American dream is just something to in, in, enrich your own personal uh, wealth? And there's even a scene in that film that is explicitly uh, sort of an affirmative action metaphor. Rocky at one point loses his locker in his boxing gym to a less experienced black fighter. Right. So if that isn't an explicit sort of engagement with uh, affirmative act, the you know, sort of anti-affirmative action discourse, right, this idea that that less qualified, less ex experienced black candidates were being granted jobs and um, and sort of uh, positions at universities that 
should have been given to more qualified white candidates is played out explicitly in that scene. And so you see very much throughout that film that um, metaphors and sort of the anti-affirmative action discourse is throughout that film. It shapes who is our hero, who is our villain. And it's done in a way right through this lens of who is the American, who is not. To, cab, to, give, to leave you with this idea that America has prioritized um, and has turned the country over to undeserving African-Americans and in, and in doing so has left behind the deserving, hardworking, white working class, right? So it has this very explicit, if you're watching the film, backlash politics, um, very sort of explicit racialized politics, but it never mentions that in, in the dialogue of the film. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And going off um, even further on Rocky, um, you use Rocky three to illustrate how not only the ideology of colorblindness becomes more powerful over time, but you also tie it to Reagan's war on drugs and how, you know, again, there's this sort of, you know, um, sort of saturation of race and race um, uh, images and symbolism. but again, sort of never uh, explicitly tackled or um, explicitly mentioned. And so how do you tie Rocky three to the war on drugs and sort of, again, this sort of American history going further on and colorblindness becoming more coherent and sort of concrete? Yeah. So if the emergence of colorblindness as a coherent ideology in the 1970s really takes shape around opposition to school integration, and affirmative action, right? And you sort of see it in this kind of populist sense on the ground in sort of battles around affirmative action programs and school integration um, orders. The election of Ronald Reagan brings colorblind ideology to the White House, right? Ronald Reagan ran a campaign in 1980 um, that explicitly stated that he would sort of eliminate affirmative action and eliminate busing programs or busing orders. And so he really runs on this on this anti-civil rights platform that, that took shape in the 1970s around colorblindness. And as you know, many other scholars uh, have, have documented already, that what Reagan also really does is he, he uses the law and order politics developed with uh, under sort of the Nixon administration and in Richard Nixon's um, presidential campaigns. And he really ramps those up. Right. And so that you see in the early years of the Reagan presidency, the massive increase in the amount of dollars allocated to policing. You also see things like really ratcheting up mandatory sentences for drug possession. And you really see the shift in the way in which Reagan sort of shapes his policies on law and order shifting into this idea of the war on drugs. Right. Where the, the strategy of the Reagan administration, at least sort of in, in what it said, was that the way to um, eradicate um, crime was, and the way to eradicate sort of illegal drug use was to wage this effect, you know, this this really aggressive policing campaign um, on particular communities. And what you know, all of these other scholars of the war on drugs, Michelle Alexander and many others, have really documented is that for for Reagan to do that, what he really did was to to create this idea that drug users and crime were located in urban black neighborhoods, right? That despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of drug users were white folks in places in like affluent areas like the suburbs, we came to understand sort of discursively that drug use and crime was concentrated in these urban uh, neighborhoods. And so this idea of crime and drug use as being an urban problem and that the, the drugs that were most dangerous and, and the biggest threat to America were drugs like crack cocaine really helps frame drug use as a, an urban black issue, right? Uh, and so what Rocky III does is, is that, it, again, it sets up who is our hero, who is our villain. 
in ways that speak directly to the politics of Reagan's war on drugs. So the villain, you know, Rocky's opponent in Rocky Three is uh, Clubber Lang, who's played by Mr. T. Clubber Lang is from the south side of Chicago, and he very much embodies this idea of this sort of urbanized uh, black masculinity that was very much positioned as the sort of threat to broader um, society and to white America in particular. Um, and you would see this sort of play out eventually when you have things like the Willie Horton ad um, in, in, in sort of George H.W. Bush's campaign in 1988. But Mr. T then sort of embodies this myth of this kind of urban black male threat to the fabric of America. And the representation of, of Mr. T really then draws on a much longer history of um, sort of the, the threatening black man uh, and specifically the threat that black masculinity uh, in film poses to white femininity. So there's a scene in Rocky Three where uh, Clubber Lang makes an explicit sort of sexual reference um, to Rocky's wife. Uh, and that's sort of a, this, this idea of uh, black male threat to white femininity, this sort of sexual threat um, is very deeply rooted in Hollywood and American culture. And so what you have then in Rocky Three is Rocky battling the threat of urban black America. And what also happens in Rocky Three is that you have Rocky and Apollo Creed unite in their sort of attempt to defeat uh, Mr. T. So you have this this allegiance created between white folks and the black middle class in that film or affluent uh, black folks or elite black folks against this idea of the threat of urban black America. And what I think is really also, I mean, I, I make a big deal about this in the book because I think it's a big deal, is before Rocky's uh, final fight with Mr. T in that film, Apollo Creed gives Rocky the American flag trunks that he wore in the first Rocky film. So it is, I think that it, it speaks to this larger metaphor of parts of America uniting to defeat this racialized threat uh, during Reagan's war on drugs in ways that sort of overlap with the politics of Reagan's war on drugs in really important ways. Um, I also think Rocky III really shows, uh, you know, because of the ways that I already mentioned about the ways in which uh, Mr. T and, and his character, Clever Lang, and Reagan's war on drugs really sort of tested the limits of, of, um, of colorblindness that you, that you see it sort of revealed that, that, um, the, the kind of racialized subtext of colorblind ideology wasn't that far beneath the surface at all. And going further, you explore also how the Reagan administration, um, relies on this ideology of colorblindness to not only sort of, you know, mask their own sort of, you know, war on drugs and stuff like that, but to rewrite both the recent and, you know, further back history, but really not that far back of um, civil rights and abolition. And so what's going on there? And then how do you see that also being played out in Hollywood? What is Hollywood doing to also play on this, you know, rewrite, rewriting of history? Yeah, so... I think your question speaks to this idea that, that I think is one of the most fundamental um, pieces of my argument in the book, and that is that historical memory was one of the most important um, pieces of um, creating the popularity or hegemony of colorblind ideology. And I think the, the best way to understand that with Reagan is, is to look at the Martin Luther King holiday. So Reagan signs the Martin Luther King holiday bill in um, November of 1983. However, Reagan had spent his political career as a fierce opponent of civil rights. He opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He opposed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, when he ran for governor of California um, in 1966, he promised to protect the rights of white homeowners to discriminate in who they sold their houses to or rented their houses to. Um, he in, in his gubernatorial campaign in California, referred to black neighborhoods as jungles. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, as he gets into the White House, he does so on a campaign promising to eliminate affirmative action and school integration um, orders. Um, we talked in, in your previous question about the war on drugs. So he had a very, very rigorous 
um, an exhaustive anti-civil rights um, agenda and a long history of opposition to civil rights. Um, and because of that, uh, he did not have any support among civil rights groups or civil rights leaders uh, in the early 1980s. And as Reagan is really ramping up his assault on civil rights in the early years of his presidency, he's getting more and more criticism from racial justice advocates about just how vehemently he opposes racial equality. So the so Reagan and his administration is, is sort of has their back against the walls where they the wall where they want to pursue this anti civil rights agenda, but they also recognize that they're taking a lot of heat for those positions. So Reagan's um, this, Reagan's decision to sign the Martin Luther King holiday in 1983 was really for two reasons. The first of which was to try to placate opponents of his civil rights position. And the reason we know this is that Reagan had opposed both Martin Luther King and the idea of a Martin Luther King federal holiday bill up until the moment he signed the Martin, he signed the bill itself. And so um, what you have then is Reagan saying explicitly in, in years like 1981 and 1982, he will not support um, or enact a Martin Luther King federal holiday. A month before he would eventually sign the bill, um, he spoke out against uh, the holiday itself. And yet you have in November of 1983, him suddenly shift uh, and sign this bill. And so on the one hand, um, this bill allowed Reagan to sort of placate civil rights uh, activists and civil rights proponents, including Coretta Scott King, the widow of Martin Luther King, who, when Ronald Reagan ran for president in 1980, Coretta Scott King said that if Ronald Reagan was elected president, it would mark a resurgence of both the KKK and the Nazi party, right? So Coretta Scott King was very explicit in her beliefs about Reagan's uh, racial views. So on the one hand, Reagan signing the federal holiday bill helps to address some of that criticism, right? And to, and to signal, hey, I'm not an opponent of civil rights. I'll, I'll support a Martin Luther King federal holiday. But more importantly, for the purposes of the ideology of colorblindness, by Reagan signing the federal Martin Luther King holiday bill, it allows him to henceforth position himself as a supporter of civil rights. And what he would increasingly do, he would position himself as the inheritor of Martin Luther King's supposed colorblind dream. So that in the aftermath of that bill, any time Ronald Reagan was publicly criticized about his position on civil rights, he would offer some version of a quote he gave in 1986, where he says, we want what I think Martin Luther King asked for, a colorblind society, right? And even when he then dedicates a statue of Martin Luther King in the Capitol Rotunda in 1985, he starts to say, my administration believes in what Martin Luther King believed in, a colorblind society. And so what you see then is that Reagan's revision or Reagan's sort of reshaping of King and the civil rights movement in popular memory or in historical memory take shape around exclusively this idea that what informed the civil rights movement was at the, what was at the center of the civil rights movement was a sort of ideological commitment to colorblindness. And of course, that isn't the case at all. But that becomes the sole representation of Martin Luther King and the sole representation of the civil rights movement that the Reagan administration offers on this national discursive level throughout the second half or so of his um, presidency. And so in, throughout his second term, as he's continuing his, his assault on these civil rights programs, he always goes to the reason why I'm doing this is not because I oppose civil rights. It's actually because I support civil rights. I support and believe in the idea of a colorblind society. And that became so popular that at one point, the, uh, a New York Times writer referred to Reagan's referencing of colorblindness and King as the Reagan race phonograph. Right. So it's this idea that it was a broken record that he played so often. And so Reagan was very effective at sort of reshaping public memory of the civil rights movement around colorblindness in order to attack civil rights. What happens then is as Reagan leaves office at, you know, in at the end of 1988, Hollywood picks up that project of imagining civil rights and imagining black freedom struggles more broadly 
as being driven by this steadfast commitment and ethos of colorblindness. So what you get in at the end of the 1980s into the 1990s are movies like The Long Walk Home. The Long Walk Home is a film that's released in 1990 that is a fictionalized portrayal of the Montgomery bus boycott. Of course, the Montgomery bus boycott um, was started by uh, Rosa Parks' refusal to yield her seat to a white passenger in Montgomery, Alabama in December of 1955. And that started the 13-month boycott of public transit in Montgomery, uh, Alabama in order to integrate um, public transportation system and help sort of dismantle Jim Crow in that city. Um, So you have this very sort of important civil rights episode as, uh, as sort of fodder for a Hollywood movie. But in that film, which stars Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg, what ends up happening is that Sissy Spacek is um, a middle-class white woman. Whoopi Goldberg uh, works as a domestic worker in her home. And over the course of the film, Sissy Spacek begins driving in carpools, shuttling black workers to and from their jobs in white neighborhoods. And of course, we know from the history of the Montgomery bus boycott that carpools were one of the many ways that black folks were able to uh, continue to go to work to and from work every day uh, during the boycott, right? So if they couldn't use the buses, uh, Montgomery bus boycott leaders created this elaborate carpool system where you could find rides to and from work. And so in the film, one of the central sort of things that happens in the film is that Sissy Spacek starts driving in these carpools. She's participating in the Montgomery bus boycott by driving black folks to and from their jobs. Rosa Parks attended the premiere of that movie and said afterwards to a reporter that asked her what she thought of the film. She said, you know, I don't recall any white women driving in the carpool. And so what you have then is this this representation of a real moment in civil rights history. But what Hollywood does is that it inserts a colorblind white hero into that action in order to say not only was colorblindness central to the civil rights movement, but leadership and heroism of colorblind white folks and what makes white folks in films like The Long Walk Home or in Mississippi Burning, what makes white folks heroes in these films is their colorblindness. That that idea was was central to the victories of the civil rights movement. And Hollywood would expand this not just Uh, would not limit this to the civil rights movement. They would expand it again to broader black freedom struggle. So you start to get movies also in 1989, you have Glory, right? Which is this representation of the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, a real all black uh, regiment in the Union Army during the Civil War that was led by a white colonel named Robert Gould Shaw. And yet what the film becomes about is the supposed colorblind heroism of Robert Gould Shaw, played by Matthew Broderick. And of course, we know from the historical record that 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 colorblind heroism was not actually part of the history um, of Robert Gould Shaw or was not Robert Gould Shaw's motivation in leading that regiment. So the issue becomes not just that these films are historically inaccurate, right, because Hollywood movies like this, they're not actual true stories. They're based on a true story. The importance then becomes is what does Hollywood do with the wiggle room it creates with this based on a true story moniker? Or label. And what happens then is that in the 1980s and 1990s, Hollywood makes more and more of these movies about black freedom struggles. Everything from Glory to The Long Walk Home, Mississippi Burning, Ghosts of Mississippi, Amistad, and so on and so forth, that insert fictional white heroes into the center of black freedom struggles. And one of the reasons I think this is so important is that it shows this bipartisan participation in the ascent and influence and power of colorblindness. So Reagan uses colorblindness to advance and bolster his anti-civil rights agenda. Hollywood then picks up on that colorblind ideology and ethos and aesthetic in order to attract uh, audiences in the 1980s and 1990s. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about what you were just saying is, you know, not only is this sort of happening um, in a sort of coherent, almost campaign between, you know, politics and Hollywood, but that, you know, sort of famous um, civil rights leaders like Rosa Parks are looking at this and saying, 
I don't know (laughs) what this is about, but this is not how it actually happened. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and I think this is, this is important for a, for a number of reasons. One of them being is that there's a lot of discussion today about what people label white savior films, right? And we think of white savior films and part of what I think is limiting about the, the sort of discourse and conversation around white savior films is that they're largely ahistorical, right? When in fact, what, I, what I'm trying to illuminate in this part of the book is that what we think of as white savior films, which typically, if we think more contemporarily of movies like The Help or of Green Book, is that white savior films are, are almost always historical dramas about black freedom struggle. And that move, what you see in movies like The Help, what you see in movies like Green Book, that emerged at a very specific time in American history for very specific reasons. And it is this moment in the late 1980s. Movies like The Long Walk Home don't exist in the 1970s or the early 1980s. Um, Movies about civil rights in the 1960s don't look like what they do at this moment. So these colorblind historical uh, dramas emerge on the heels of the Reagan presidency, right? So as Reagan gives us this version again of a colorblind civil rights movement, a colorblind black freedom struggle. Hollywood you know, capitalizes on that immediately afterwards. So you have this protracted period beginning in the 1980s where popular memory is reshaped around this idea that what, what has solely sort of informed and driven black freedom struggles has been colorblindness. That that is what these things have always been about. And colorblind white folks have always made heroic contributions to these efforts, right? So the point is not just that those things aren't true. The point is that that narrative has been, was used in the 1980s and 1990s to advance political positions that undermined civil rights programs. And so speaking about, you know, sort of new genres of films, one of the things that you talk about towards the end of your book is, you know, this genre of teacher films that sort of emerges in force in the 90s. And so what are teacher films and what do they tell us about colorblindness in the 90s and how it sort of developed? Yeah, so teacher films, you know, refer, you know, I'm using that to, to refer to a series of films in which what you typically have is a white woman who take a middle-class white woman who takes a job in an urban inner city neighborhood teaching uh, as a teacher uh, teaching uh, students that are predominantly black uh, or Latinx. Um, And so, and then what you have over the course of the film is these teachers sort of saving these students, getting them to buy into their education, getting them to, um, uh, to leave their gangs, getting them to stop dealing drugs and to buy into their education as this sort of way um, out of the uh, socioeconomic condition uh, of the neighborhoods they, they find themselves in. And so, you know, and this plays very much on um, a couple of things. It plays on the this sort of idea and discourse of the supposed cultural pathology of urban black neighborhoods that you get through things like the Moynihan Report beginning in the 1960s, that you know you get through the 1980s with things like Reagan's War on Drugs. So it plays on that idea, but then it also builds on this uh, idea of colorblind white heroes. And so what I think teacher films really mark is the culmination of nearly three decades of colorblind ideology. And so what you have by then is an entire genre of Hollywood films, right? So if historical dramas like The Long Walk Home or, or Glory are part of a genre, right, historical dramas that, that deal with a wide range of topics, they just do, you know, Glory and The Long Walk Home just do so by focusing on Black freedom struggles. Teacher films are in, an entire genre all in and of themselves. And my argument is that teacher films as a genre rely on colorblind white heroes, that that is part of the expectations, that is part of uh, the sort of uh, rules, rules of the genre itself. Um, and so you have movies like Dangerous Minds, where um, Michelle Pfeiffer um, plays um, a teacher uh, that moves into this inner city neighborhood to, you know, to, to serve as a teacher and to get them to basically stop a lot of her students to sort of stop buying, uh, stop selling drugs and 
value their education. So there's this big uh, moment, uh, kind of transitional moment or or shifting moment in the film where um, she, as a way to teach these Black and Latinx students poetry, right, she shows them um, Bob Dylan's lyrics to Mr. Tambourine Man. And all the students sort of hate this film. They don't, I mean, I'm sorry, they hate this, uh, these lyrics. They don't get it. They don't know what, what it's about. And then when Michelle Pfeiffer's character says, this is about Bob Dylan writing about a drug dealer, uh, suddenly all of the students are engaged and interested in poetry, right? Um, and so it's this idea of edge of that. It's presenting this argument that in order for these urban racialized communities, black communities in particular, in order for them to overcome the poverty that they face, right? These are movies that don't acknowledge systematic racism. They don't acknowledge decades and decades of white supremacy and decades and de decades of discriminatory policies that have that have sort of mandated the impoverishment of their communities and then have then over-policed them. Um, none of that is acknowledged in these films. It's strictly this idea that what holds these communities back, what explains their socioeconomic situation is a lack of cultural value placed on education. And so what you have in these teacher films are typically white women coming in to teach these urban black populations what they need to know to supposedly lift themselves out of poverty. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting is just, you know, how sort of pervasive that idea sort of becomes during the 90s and then sort of continues to be. Because I know for myself, Freedom Writers, um, the 2007 film came out when I was in middle school. And the amount of times that we were shown that film is just crazy, especially considering the school that I went to was um, majority, like, very much, you know, black. Um, the I went to um, middle school in Roanoke, Virginia, uh -huh. which is a very segregated city. And at that time, the school lines had not been changed since desegregation. And basically what what happened was the middle school that I went to, all of the sort of ghetto neighborhoods, low income neighborhoods, apartment complex was across the city were fed into that one middle school, no matter where you lived. And they showed us freedom writers so wow. much. Yeah. Yeah. And I think freedom writers is another sort of iconic teacher film, right? And, and freedom writers, you know, I think that's a teacher films and freedom writers in particular is another, um, is, is one of the films that I think really speaks to the title of the book. Um, that this idea that, that Hollywood narratives about these racialized communities are really about recentering whiteness because a movie like freedom riders ultimately has very little to do with the actual experiences of, or, or sort of systemic and structural racism that is impacting these communities. It just uses low income impoverished communities of color as a foil to reinforce and celebrate colorblind white heroism. Um, and so, you know, again, that's the sort of, that's sort of centering whiteness and in, in the case of teacher films often sort of white femininity as as sort of colorblind so you know and and i think the other thing that teacher films do is they implicitly sort of reinforce this idea that it is the quote-unquote ghetto itself that fosters and and sort of reproduces this culture of pathology right so what you often have in just about what you have in just about every teacher film is that the teachers, the, the kind of colorblind white saviors in these films, they only teach in these neighborhoods for a single year, and then they have to leave, right? So Hillary Swank comes in for a single year. Michelle Pfeiffer comes in for a single year. And the idea, what's, what's sort of meant by that, it's that if you stay too long, you'll catch the quote-unquote ghetto, right? And then you'll, you'll, you'll sort of lose all of... Uh, the sort of educational value that you've brought into this community, right? It'll sort of suck the life out of you. And, and the way that you see that in a film like Freedom Riders is that there's, there's an important scene in which Hilary Swank's character is in the faculty room and she has lunch with one of her white male colleagues. And the white male colleague basically says, and, and I'm curious if you remember this scene, he basically says, don't waste your time with these students. Like they're never going to learn anything. You know, like just cash your check and, and move on. 
with your day. And it's this idea that that is a, that is a white teacher that is taught at this school for a number of years. He's, he's caught the quote unquote ghetto. He's caught the quote unquote cultural pathology, the lack of value of education that is sort of bred and reproduced in these neighborhoods. And he then is incapable of the sort of savior role that Hillary Swank will perform because she sort of parachutes into this neighborhood, saves a few, you know, one class of students and then gets out of there. Yeah, I definitely remember that scene. Um, you know, for me, like is, is along with, you know, just how this is sort of, you know, illustrating the history of colorblindness and, you know, we still very much have teacher films and they very much affect, you know, society. And for me, I also was, when reading this, I was thinking about because when I initially entered college, I wanted to be a high school teacher. And that was what I sort of initially wanted to do. Um, and because I was sort of on, you know, the listservs for all of that, I very quickly be, uh, started getting bombarded by emails from Teach for America, yeah. which, you know, is sort of, at least in my mind, it's sort of an outgrowth of this kind of colorblind um ideology and sort of teacher film ideology in terms of how it sort of presents itself. And then, you know, I would see so many people because of my school um, at Virginia Tech, a lot of um, people who were going into education just happened to be history majors. And so a lot of them sort of had this ideology of, okay, I'm going to go for Teach for America for, as you were talking about, this temporary amount of time. And they almost always put you in sort of a low income, majority, minority school system. And then they pull you right back out after you've gotten sort of a cultural experience. Right. And, and the way my understanding is that one of the primary ways that Teach for America attracts candidates is by saying this is a great way to go to an elite law school or an elite MBA program. Right. Come do your two years for Teach for America and then you can get into Harvard Law School. Right. So the idea then is that you're not actually invested in a longer educational project in these communities. Um, it, it's again, it's that idea that you can parachute in, make some immediate impact and then leave, um, to go, to get on with your life. Yeah. And I think that you see that. And, and, and just to kind of go back a little bit, the, the important sort of social history of colorblindness that you see in the mid nineties alongside of the emergence of teacher film is you begin to have ballot initiatives in States like California that, um, implement colorblindness as, um, you know, into law. So, Cal, uh, so in 1996, um, California passes proposition 209, which was called the California civil rights initiative on the ballot. And it used the idea of colorblindness to eliminate, uh, affirmative action in the state. Right. So to me, that marks really the culmination or the, or the sort of hegemonic moment of colorblindness. That over the course of 20 years, you go from having it as in sort of these these pockets of suburban white opposition to, say, um, school integration or busing programs. And then it gets into the White House in the 1980s um, with Ronald Reagan, where he's really advocating and using colorblindness to try to um, eliminate civil rights programs and has sort of mixed results at the Supreme Court level throughout his presidency. But by the time you get into the 1990s, you then have a majority of California voters voting overwhelmingly to that to support a bill that uses colorblindness to eliminate one of the very victories of the civil rights movement. And, and then along the way, you think about Hollywood's role in that, right? From films like Rocky into these sort of historical dramas like Glory into this sort of genre of teacher films in the mid 90s. And it's this idea that what these communities don't need is some unfair quote unquote handout like affirmative action. They just need to learn to value their education in the way that Michelle Pfeiffer or eventually Hillary Swank is trying to teach them and that that will give them all of the opportunity they need and all of the opportunity they deserve to get into college, right? So to me, teacher films are not just important because they are sort of another iteration of the so-called white savior genre but it is the white savior genre in terms of education, which is no accident that when thinking about education and educational opportunity, you're, you're immediately thinking about things like affirmative action, right? So that, that overlap is very, very important. 
And so before we let you go, you know, we have this great book in front of us. Once again, White Balance, How Hollywood Shaped Colorblind Ideology and Undermined Civil Rights. So we have this great book and I encourage all of our listeners to become readers and go out and grab this book. It's great. I think it's really timely right now. Um, But this book, you know, just came out last month. And so if you want to tell me you're taking a break, that's completely fine. But what might you be working on right now? What's your next sort of project? Yeah, so there's real there's really kind of two um, ideas or two projects that uh, that I I plan and hope to to tackle next. I think, you know, the timelines for them being somewhat different. But the first of which is um, is a book length project uh, that I plan to co-author with one of my colleagues, Michael Cohen. That is much that that effectively is a broader look at um, how Hollywood has shaped um, American racial ideology throughout the 20th century. So if if you know this book is really sort of a, a focused look at a 30 year period, um, the project we're imagining is looking much more at how Hollywood throughout its history um, is sort of uh, has shaped American racial ideology. So so we think about it as as sort of a book about race in Hollywood and as a history of both um, through many important movies. Um, one of the, the kind of more tongue in cheek ways that we've spoken about the project is to say, um, you know, that, it, that it's race in Hollywood from birth of a nation to birth of a nation talking, you know, about D.W. Griffith's 1915 film and, and Nate Parker's 2016 film, right? That you have, these are, that's sort of the bookends. Um, although we, we probably won't talk about Nate Parker's film. Um, the other project is really an outgrowth uh, very explicitly of this project, right? Um, we talked a lot about these historical dramas uh, that emerge in the late 80s and, and, and early 90s, uh, these sort of colorblind uh, dramas about Black freedom struggles. What I think is fascinating is that what you also have, and I don't get into this in the book, is that during that same period, a lot of Black independent filmmakers are making movies of their own that are historical dramas that offer very different representations of black freedom struggles and offer and instead locate the agency um, and the heroism of those freedom struggles squarely in the hands of black activists uh, and black folks. So there's everything from um, something like Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust to even something like Spike Lee's Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X by Spike Lee's 1993, right in the middle of all of these films. I don't think that's an, you know, I, that's not an accident that you have, you know, I I think Spike Lee saying, okay, you want to talk about the 1960s, here's a movie about Malcolm X. And so I I do want to, you know, I I have plans to to do a project that's more about um, this idea of historical memory and black independent film. Uh, So those are, those are kind of the two ideas. Um, You know, it's, it's easy to have ideas. um, But as this project taught me, it's a, it's an uphill climb to get them out in the world. Well, those sound very much interesting, and I'm sure this might be very corny, but for the second project focusing on Black um, actors and Black uh, films and everything, perhaps you could call it Black Balance. Um, (laughs) Sounds extremely corny, but I I, I feel if it was myself, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. But in any case, I'm sure when those eventually come out, we'll have you right back onto the program. Um, But in any case, thank you very much for coming today. I would love to be back. And uh, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure.